for able to remain standing for a moment longer. For our scripture reading this morning, I'm turning to 1 John chapter 2. I'm going to be reading verses 15 through 17. This is the word of our Lord, 1 John 2, starting at verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the loss of the flesh, the loss of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we pray that your spirit be upon us today, even as we consider your word for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The Bible often describes the Christian life as a battle, a struggle, a difficult race, a striving, farming, working out, fighting in a boxing ring. All these things are descriptions of the Christian life. And the Christian life is often portrayed in terms of the tension between the already and the not yet. The tension between the Lord Jesus Christ having come and done all that is necessary for the redemption of of, of His elect, the changing of people's lives, and the not yet of his returning to make all things new, to completely removing uh, sin from this world. So that's where we live, in in that zone, in that space between what God has already done in Christ and what God is going to do in the return of Jesus Christ. And because that's where we live, there's lots of tension in our lives. And John expresses these tensions in the book of 1 John. For example... He speaks about our living as the result of the already, the work of Christ in our hearts. Look at chapter 5, verses 4 and 5 for a second. There the apostle says, talking about those who have faith in Christ, "For For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. As you notice here in chapter 5, Jesus, Jesus, John speaks in terms of having overcome the world, something that happened in the past as we came to faith in Jesus Christ. But as you notice in the passage that we read this morning, John speaks in terms of overcoming the world, of something that's still happening in our lives even today. And John then teaches us in this passage before us today that love for the world is incompatible with love for the Father. As we overcome the world, we're demonstrating that we love the Father, not this world that we live in. And what what John says is completely consistent with what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, our Lord says this, He says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. So John is just reflecting what our Lord said. Who is your master? Is it the Lord Jesus Christ? What is the world that you live in? 
Now, we may have many loves in our lives. We may like all kinds of things. But one love must rule our life. And that is a holy passion for God and the things of God. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is what rules over your life. Now, having made these big statements about what John teaches here, we have to back up a little bit and define what the world is in this passage. John uses the word world 23 times in this little book. And he uses it differently. So look at me, look at it with me. That's what I mean. Don't look at me, but look at your Bible with me. Uh, as we look at the way that John uses the word world in this little book. Look at verse 2 of chapter 2. He says, And he himself is a propitiation of, for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Notice how that is different, a different use of the word world than the passage that we're considering this morning. It, it, first John 2, 15 through 17 uses the word world completely different than in verse 2 of the same chapter. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us. Look at chapter th uh, verse 13 of chapter 3. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Then in, chapter, in verse 17 of chapter 3. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Do you notice how here is a little different? The, the word world means something different than in chapter 2, 15 through 17. Look at uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this we know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God, and this is the spirit of the Antichrist which we have heard was coming and is now already in the world. Again, the world here means something a little different than the other previous occasions in this book. Look at verse 9 of chapter 4. In this, the love of God was manifest, manifested toward us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Maybe just one more. Look at chapter 5, verse 19. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And as you pay attention to these ways that John used the word world, you see that each, each time he uses it a little differently. And there's really four ways that the word world is used in John uh, and in the New Testament. One is that the world refers to the physical universe, creation. So the, world, the, the word world is equivalent to the word creation. Often when it talks about uh, Christ being around before the beginning of the world, that's what it's re relating to, talking about. The word world is also used for the system of this present age that is opposed to God. 
Everything that's around, that's opposed to God. The, the word world is also used uh, to refer to all the people living a particular time in history. The whole world came to see Jesus. Even then, is, is, a, is a particular amount of people. And then fourthly, the word world is used in John to also refer to, refer to all kinds of people, all ethnicities of people to have ever lived on the earth. In our passage here this morning, John does not refer to the physical world or to the masses of people living on the planet. He uses the term to refer to a kingdom whose ruler and inhabitants are lost in sin and completely at odds with anything pleasing to God. Paul refers to the same group as the kingdom of darkness. That's what the word world means in our passage. Here, world is a realm in opposition to Christ and his church. The world, in this sense, lives in rebellion against the Lord and his Christ, as we saw in Psalm 2, verse 2, that we recited this morning. The world refers to the mass of sinful men who subscribe to a system of belief, thought, practice, that is in rebellion against God and under the God of this age. That's the world that we are to overcome in our passage. Paul speaks of this world when he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. That's the world. Those whose minds are darkened, those who do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and their thoughts and ideas and beliefs. So in this sense... The world includes men, women, and children whose focus is on this age's lusts and neglect the age to come, which is a description of everyone who do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that is the world, then worldliness is human nature without God. That's really what worldliness is, human nature without God. Believer in Christ we are a new creature with a new nature and a new identity. We're no longer who we were before Christ. We are new. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's who you are in Jesus Christ. But there are vestiges of the old nature. There's leftovers of that old nature still in us and that we are trying to get rid of in the process of sanctification. And overcoming the world that John speaks about is part of that process in which we are getting rid of, of the less vestiges of that old man, the old person, the old self that we were apart from Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that's the case in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through 24, where he says that we have learned Christ, we are in Christ, and so because we are in Christ, we are to put off what is consistent with who we, we were apart from Christ, and we are to put on what is consistent with what we are in Christ Jesus. We have to change our uniform, we have to change our jersey, we're no longer playing for the old self team. Therefore, we have to take off the things that are identifying us with that team and put on what identifies us with our new team, the, the team Christ, as it were. And we do that in the process of overcoming the world. 
So, I think it's fair to, to ask, what does overcoming the world or what does overcoming worldliness mean? And let me start by saying what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean isolating yourself. John does not mean conquering the people of this world by winning power battles in culture. John doesn't mean that you overcome the world by having a particular political party in the rule in ruling. That's not the overcoming the world. John doesn't mean withdrawing from the world like monks or the Amish people do. A Christian is called to fight worldliness while in the world, even though he is not of the world. He or she must live in the world, but not let the world live in him or her. Escaping is not overcoming. If you go and live on top of Mount Everest with nobody else, guess where the world is still going to be? Right there on top of Mount Everest. Why? Because you're there. So just escaping by itself is not overcoming the world. Also, overcoming doesn't mean sanctifying everything in the world for Christ. That might sound weird coming from the pastor, but I'm more and more, I'm, I'm, I should say, I'm less and less convinced that a Kuyperian view, and you can go home and Google Abraham Kuyper, that teaches that we are called to redeem the culture we live in is really what we're called to do. We are called to overcome the world and to do everything to the best of our ability, which may result in, in an overall improvement in culture, but that's not our goal in life. That's not how we overcome the world. We don't need to Christianize everything as if what was, that, that was what God is calling us to do. What God calls us to do is to disciple the nations, not to rearrange the furniture on the deck of the Titanic. Okay? So this is what, this is what overcoming worldliness does not mean. Let, let me give you four essential aspects of what it means to overcome the world. First, overcoming the world starts with a decision to overcome the world. It doesn't happen by accident. We, you don't just trip into overcoming the world. In order to overcome the world, we have to first realize that there is something to be overcome. Does it make sense? We have to know that there's something that we need to overcome, that you have to get over it, you have to destroy. And this is well exemplified in Joshua's commitment. Remember his commitment at the end of his life? He's an old man pushing a hundred. And he stands before the people and he ends the book with three speeches to the congregated people of God. And in chapter 24, verse 15, he says, And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, will serve the Lord. And that's a decision that needs to be made. Notice that no neutrality doesn't exist. Do you hear me? You are never neutral. You're either serving God or serving Satan. Those are the only two options. And it seems, as you read what Joshua puts before the people of God, that lukewarmness is the worst of all decisions. Just being neutral, being on the fence, not going one way or the other, is worse than just saying, you know what, I'm not going to worship God. In the standard, that, 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 in what Joshua says here. 
Overcoming the world means that we take a plunge into potential rejection by the world, placing the fear of God above the fear of man and esteeming God's desires of greater value than the desires of man. And Moses is a great example of that. In Hebrews 11, verses 24 through 26, the Holy Spirit says, By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Why? Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. So the first step the first aspect of overcoming the world is actually deciding to do so, making that commitment to do so. Secondly, we need to own the freedom and the perseverance that we have in Christ. Now, perseverance against worldliness takes grace. We can't do it on, ourselves, on our own. It takes the grace of God. Worldly temptations entice us. Satan knows our weaknesses. At times... The attacks may be so powerful that we feel like we are going to break. But we have to realize, we have to own the fact that sin no longer has dominion over us and that Satan is a defeated foe. You know, in seminary, I was told that a, um, if you are really a good student of the New Testament, your Greek New Testament, if you put it on its edge like this, will fall open to Romans chapter 5. So I heard that, and I grabbed my Greek New Testament, and it fall and, and fell open to the dictionary. Uh, so that was a bit discouraging. But I think if I open my Greek New Testament today, it will fall open not to Romans 5, but to Romans 7. Because that's really where most of us live our lives as we fight to overcome the world. Paul owned the fact that sin no longer had dominion over him, even in the midst of struggling with sin. In Romans 7, 21-25, Paul says, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members. See the, the, not the heart, but the members, the, the vestiges of that old na- nature, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. And he's getting close to despair. And he cries out, O oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? Remember what it says next? He doesn't go into despair. He owns his identity in Christ. He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So he owned his identity in Christ in fighting the world, even in the midst of struggling with that sin, to know that his deliverance was in Jesus Christ. And thirdly, third aspect, we need to rise above our worldly circumstances. That's just another way to say that we need to be content. Lack of contentment will keep us from overcoming the world. Christ-centered contentment is essential for fighting worldliness. In the teaching of Paul, we see that neither poverty, nor sorrow, nor joy, which seems weird to say, could move Paul from Christ-centered living. Remember what he says there in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, not 
that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound everywhere. And in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer, to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So if we want to strive against worldliness, content, Christ-centered contentment must be there. Otherwise, we are going to lose. Fourth aspect, and we're not coming to the end of the sermon. There's more, so I just want to get that, that so that you don't, don't start getting excited that the end is near. The fourth aspect of overcoming worldliness is that we have to live a life of self-denial. Sometimes people think that it's contrary to a life filled of, with, with the grace of God, but it's actually the grace of God that causes us to live a life of self-denial. That's what Paul tells Titus in Ch- Titus chapter 2, where he says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And then he says in verse 12 of Ch- Titus 2 that that grace is doing something for us. It is teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that we, he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. How we're being purified by the grace of God who teaches us to deny ourselves. We need to live a life of Self-denial. You know, for me, right now, in the state of my life, watching TV is the biggest idol in my life, I think. Other than self, right? We all know that self is the biggest idol for all of us. But watching, if I could, I watch TV from the moment I get up to the moment I go to bed. My kids are all snickering up here, uh, up front. Uh, that, does not, that doesn't contribute to fighting worldliness. And unless I'm willing to sacrifice that, right? Sense so small, but most of our idols seem very small till they are not. So find what that thing is that is in the way and kill it. Right? With John Owen, kill sin because if you don't, what is sin going to do? Kill you. Right? Put on Jesus Christ, as Paul says in Romans, and make no provision for the flesh. Flesh. All right. Having talked about these four aspects of overcoming the world, let's talk about the actual practice of overcoming the world in, in, in life. And the very first thing, and this is going to sound like the same, but these are, I think, more a little more practical than what we've been talking about, is you must be born again. You cannot overcome the world if you are not born again. So regeneration, the new birth, is of utmost importance. That's what John says in chapter 5, verse 4, where it says, for, whatever is, for whoever is born of God overcomes the world. So unless you're born of God, you are not going to overcome the world, or even want to overcome the world. John Stott says, that regeneration or the new birth is a supernatural event which takes us out of the sphere of the world where Satan rules and into the family of God. The spell of the old life has been broken. The fascination of the world has lost its appeal. 
So objectively, the world was overcome at the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. That was the end of it. Subjectively, we overcome the world at our new birth. That is the beginning right there. The second thing is faith in Jesus Christ. Again, in 1 John 5, 4, John says, This is what has overcome the world, your faith. Objectively, the content of what we believe according to the Scriptures, subjectively, the faith you have in Jesus Christ. So, the new birth has to happen before you can overcome the world. You must, your justification, your, your placing your faith in Jesus Christ must happen before you can overcome the world. And even though we have overcome the world in our union with Christ, we continue to have to overcome the world in everyday life. And John names three areas in which we are constantly fighting to overcome the world. Look at 1 John 2.16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The lust or the desires of the flesh. We tend to think of the word lust as a sexual thing. It, it usually, not, not usually, always in our translation, the word lust by itself is just translating the word for desire. It can be good or bad. It's, it's a word used in both ways. So one of the things that we're fighting against is the lust or desires of the flesh. That is, the desires left over from our old, sinful, and fallen nature. It would be great if once we were born again and came to faith in Jesus everything that we desired prior to that disappeared. But it doesn't. Is that fair to say? If you think that you have no desire that is contrary to your faith in Christ, then perhaps you need to examine your faith in Christ to see if that is real. Because there is always a clash between Christ and the world. We are to fight also the desires of the eyes, the temptations that assault us from the outside. Everything in this world is trying to get us to depart from Christ. Our Lord says, if it were possible, Satan would deceive even the elect. That's how hard he tries. And he says we're to fight the pride of life, the material life and possessions, the love of money, the boasting about it. And this means certain things. This means putting restrictions on ourselves. This includes lists of do's and don'ts, and we don't like those lists. Uh, this includes not associating with certain people. This includes the way we dress and talk. This includes our entertainment. All that is including in what John says here concerning the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And this has nothing to do with legalism. Let's be honest, okay? Let's be honest and not try to justify our indulging in our love for the world by calling obedience to God's word legalism. When God chose to give his people the ten most important things in our relationship with him, guess what he gave us? A list of do's and don'ts. That's what we call the Ten Commandments. When Jesus was asked to tell us the two most important things that you could read in the Bible, he gave us a list of do's and don'ts. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, body, and strength, which means don't love anything else like that, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
So let's not try to look super spiritual by saying, oh, this is legalism, because it's not. Let's not try to hide our desire to stay conformed with the world under the banner of legal, saying, oh, this is legalism, because it is not. Legalism is an attempt to be righteous before God by means of a set of rules. Now, if you're going to come to God and say, look, look, God, at my obedience, look how great I've done in keeping all your rules, you should accept me for that, then that is illegal legalism. And God is never going to accept that, because the best thing you can do is just the equivalent to the filthiest sort of rags you can bring before God. But working out our sanctification as a result of the grace of God poured into our hearts is not legalism. And that's something that we have to keep in mind. So faith strives against worldliness. What we have seen today can be summarized in four ways. And now we're getting to the end. We overcome the world by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God. There's no other way. We overcome the world by purifying our hearts through Christ-centeredness. We overcome the world by living according to what pleases God. And we overcome the world by living for the unseen world that waits us. That's what verse 17 says. And the world is passing away in the loss of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. And this last one is of great importance. To live with this current world in view is to live for something that is going to pass away. As some have said, is to live for Kindle. Not the little reading device, but what's going to be burnt. Kindling, right? It's better said. Kindling. It's to live for, for kindling. This is going to be all burned out as the coming of Jesus Christ. And to put your hopes in it is to live for what's going to be destroyed. What God has given us is eternal and of much more value than the here and now. And this is important because if you're not convinced of that, we will, ne- we will have a difficult time in overcoming the world. But if we treasure Christ, the world will be a strange place for us as we sojourn to the promised land. And that's the key to overcoming worldliness. Let us pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We pray for your grace to be upon us, that we might overcome the world as we believe in your Son. For asking in Jesus' name, amen.